Our episode today is brought to you by Cathode Ray Media. Cathode Ray is a full-service marketing agency that connects government organizations to their communities. Wondering how they can help you? Here are just a few ideas. They use ingenuity and imagination to create awareness of progress and opportunity within your community. They help residents and visitors find local shopping, dining, and service businesses. They make residents and stakeholders aware of challenges that affect them and their community, while encouraging them to get help or get involved. They can also work to help attract new small businesses while helping micro-entrepreneurs learn how this small but mighty woman-owned and operated marketing agency can help your community. They use tried and true methods that will connect your organization to your residents using social, digital, and traditional media. Curious? Visit cathoderay.com, that's K-A-T-H-O-D-E-R-A-Y.com to learn more or ask for a free no-obligation consultation. We thank Cathode Ray for their support of the Econ Dev Show. Before we begin, I want to apologize for the quality of the audio recording. Unfortunately, I had some difficulties with Ford's audio and it doesn't sound perfect but I felt like what he had to say was so great and important and timely that I just had to push it out. Welcome to the Econ Dev Show. We explore the strategies, ideas, and insights that are driving economic development forward into the future. You'll hear new insights from passionate EDs about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from attraction and retention experts about how to apply actionable strategies inside your EDO. We'll help take your organization, your community, and your career to the next level. Here's your host, Dane Carlson. Welcome back to the Econ Dev Show. Today we're here with W. Ford Graham. He is a partner with McGuire Woods, where he's a senior vice president, where he does national infrastructure and economic development work. He has facilitated new industry and industrial expansion in over 123 projects, which have resulted in commitments of more than 11,000 new jobs and $3.9 billion in new investment. Ford, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Absolutely. So you're our expert on investment from the Europeans into the United States. You've had a lot of experience recruiting from Europe into the southeast of the United States. And I think it'll be good to pick your brain given the geopolitical situation in the world. And the rest of the country historically has not had this deep tie to going out and recruiting from Europe, like the Southeast has. So I think maybe first, let's start with why is the Southeast like that? Why have they historically been the ones to go out and do that? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting that more than 100 years ago, when the textile industry and a lot of heavy manufacturing started moving from the Northeast and the Midwest into the South, really really because the cost of labor was lower and they, in a way they were avoiding um, union activity. The companies that made the equipment and serviced the equipment for all of these new manufacturing companies or these newly renovated, let's say, having shifted down, um, they're, they were European. And so um, you would that they would 
they would obviously send uh, machinery equipment over from Europe, and then they would have to have somebody to maintain it. And it really created some strong ties in the South in general between European manufacturing and Europe. And so, you know, you'll find strong pockets of, of European uh, uh, manufacturing that still exists today that really was built on technology that's, you know, again, 120, 150 years old. So kind of interesting okay. concept. That makes sense. So they were using European equipment. So they had relationships and it just went from there. Interesting. Yeah. And basically the South decided uh, really after World War II that it needed to find a way to shift from an agri agricultural society, agricultural community into, um, well, diversify its economy. And so um, a lot of local um, local politicians and state politicians from the different states decided that they would, you know, revamp some of their training and they would focus efforts on recruiting industry from other parts of the world. And so a lot of that, again, because of the ties that they had, longstanding ties with these European countries and these European manufacturers, it, it seemed like an easy way to break into uh, attracting more companies to the area, specifically on the European side. And of course, uh, the East Coast, obviously the time the time difference um, is 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 favorable as well because you're not talking about you know hours of difference, but you're only talking about uh, six or seven. So it's very helpful. Right, that makes it easy. Your practice focuses a lot on this European business. So how has it changed? How many years you've been in this, and how has it changed over that time? Yeah, so I have been doing economic development for about uh, six with um, the State Department of Commerce. And I worked there for about 10 years, and my job is, again, to recruit, recruit companies to the Palmetto State in South Carolina. And, uh, and, and what I've seen, and, and obviously now I'm in the private, private practice in the private sector, and, and what I have seen is that uh, European companies uh, are becoming more and more aware um, that the Southeast is, uh, you know, one of the leaders in growth uh, in terms of manufacturing. Uh, whereas before, I was constantly knocking on doors trying to, um, you know, why we're not New York, why we're not Chicago, why we're not Miami, why we're this little this little place on the East Coast that has been doing very well uh, in manufacturing, lots of attributes that you know, international companies would like in general, but European companies especially. And it's out on BMW coming thirty years ago and then operating in, in, in the South and, and lots and lots of other companies. Um, so you've got these stories to tell where, hey, these companies are international. They've been successful. You can be successful. You can be successful here too. And that story, and not just in South Carolina, but across North Carolina, Georgia, uh, Florida, Alabama, these states are also always competing with each other, you know, always trying to one up each other on a level of training that they do and the companies as they come in. And of course, incentives are also a big part of, of the recruiting of, of, of a lot of these companies. How has that changed as, you know, they become more and more aware? Like, are they, you know, are they spending more money? Are they spending less money? Are they, you know, interacting differently? So, so it's interesting. The states themselves have been focused on FDI uh, and having actual physical offices in Europe for the last 45 years. So at one point, there were 32 states that had at least 
some representative in Europe trying to knock on doors, just like I was doing, you know, 15 or 16 sure. years ago, trying to tell the story of why their state is a great place to go. And that number went down in the early 2000s uh, to mid, uh, mid 2000s to about 11 states that had offices. And I think that just changed based on, you know, based on politics, based on the amount of money it costs to do uh, operations abroad, um, based on successes that they were having with domestic companies that the number went down. Now, at the moment, I think there are 17 states uh, that have offices in Europe specifically. And, you know, they're, they're not just Southern states. They're, New York's got an office, and uh, I'm trying to think who else. Um, Illinois has got an office. Um, Pennsylvania's got offices all over the world. So, so from that standpoint, um, you, you've seen ups and downs in terms of the ways that states interact with European companies. But uh, what you also have found is that uh, a lot of states recognize that, again, to diversify their economy, it's good to have companies uh, from all over the world, from all different aspects of the industrial sector. And so I don't know if, if they've stopped knocking on doors and telling their story, but you, you see that uh, the importance, at least at the moment, uh, there's a, a big importance on attracting European companies. Sure. And it's more interesting now because um, Europe at the moment is, is really suffering from a couple of different things. I mean, obviously, uh, we're still in the middle of this uh, war with uh, Europe, still in the middle of a, of a war because of Ukraine and, and, and Russia. Mm -hmm. And that's exacerbated by the energy cost across the globe. Um, and so finding that European companies are, are really trying to make the decision whether they want to expand where they are now or whether they want to make the leap to the United States. Um, part of this has all obviously been complica complicated by COVID and the rising cost of construction in the U.S., the rising cost uh, resulting uh, interest rates. So it's this perfect storm in terms of companies making a decision whether they want to try to do a little bit more where they are um, or try to make the, the jump into uh, the U.S. market. It's not an easy choice sure. to make. It's a lot of money and a lot of risk. So Right. So what are the um, advantages for your, other than the, the size of our market and they, they can have... Um, you know, manufacturing here, what are yeah. the advantages for, for them to do that, to move to the U S or to expand to the U S? I mean, those are two good ones that you mentioned. Um, and, but also you, you've got way into not only uh, U.S. market, but also into Mexico, Canada, um, or even further South into South America, you've got, You've got a fairly stable market uh, the term, in terms of energy cost and other tax market fairly low in terms of um, what they're used to paying in, in Europe. And so the, the cost of doing business here is, can be, I mean, depending on what European country they're coming from and what other European country they're looking at to do their potential expansions. But those are just a few of the things that, that make being in the U.S. very helpful. Um, but the more you can't you can't get away from the fact that this market is huge you know but 300 and some million people um and a lot of them are, are spending money so um right. it's it's a great market to be in and you, the other thing i want to mention is you don't have to conquer the united states all at the same time you can focus on one specific area one specific uh region and then build your business from there these companies they already are selling products into the united states they move to the united states so they can 
you know, take advantage of all these things that you mentioned. Um, but historically, hasn't that so historically the practice has been that they would manufacture the items in their own countries and then ship them over to the United States or ship them to wherever their consumers were. Um, and then in what, well, and then in about 2000, right, the United States started uh, exporting our manufacturing jobs out to outside of the United States, to China, to, to other places. And, um, did the Europeans do the same? Did they do their manufacture? Did they export their manufacturing to China? They did. Yeah, I mean, China is a low cost, or it was a low cost, um, a low cost provider of lots of of technologies and lots of um, widgets, lots of subcomponents that go into um, you know the end product that the Europeans are making, just like a, just like Americans are doing. Yeah, so sure. I mean, everybody made that that leap, and and part. Of by the fact that the focus was on be you know finding the low finding the most uh, the low cost provider that could provide the product at the same level that they could find somewhere else for a higher cost, and so we, really they procurement wasn't thinking about logistics you know which we've seen in terms of the the right. issues created by COVID. They were thinking about what is the lowest cost provider that I can find that can produce that exact same widget, um, and. And that was really what the C-suite was thinking as well. And so we've seen now that that has shifted and, you know, logistics and, and uh, uh, being able to get the product is, is a huge part of the thought process of, at the moment. Very, very hot topic. Right. And since the, um, oops, and since, and since they're selling to the United States, then uh, it makes sense to move manufacturing to the United States. So they are, their supply chains are shorter and, and all of that. That's right. So, so there are a couple of different ways, and and I don't uh, want to bore the listeners with with the details. But there are several different ways that you, uh, European companies and, and international companies make the transition to the U.S. First is like you mentioned before, they're just selling a few products in, and they realize the market's pretty good, but they want to they want to grow it further. So they'll open up a little sales office, um, and they'll have like one person or two people, and that'll turn into a warehouse essentially, where they can have more of the product ready to be sold and they have a, a u.s presence uh in terms of the way they market themselves um and in terms of entering into contracts in the u.s and then eventually they'll find that demand is is so good or they'll find an opportunity where they've got to have something closer so they'll build a manufacturing facility or they'll build an assembly facility first and then you know maybe it'll turn into a full-fledged manufacturing facility so that's the, the different process and uh and you know that that I see that over and over and over again. Um, and um, I've I, now forgot your question. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. That, I guess that brings up, that's an interesting question that I had never even thought about. So um, when you would go and you would knock on these doors and, and tell them about South Carolina, was the initial ask that they just open up a sales office in the U.S.? Or was it that they you know, wholesale pick up and move, you know, move their manufacturing? Well, so the, the request was that they open their, uh, a branch manufacturing office in the United States. That, that was the request for South Carolina. Uh, obviously we did and we are, um, as a state in recruiting jobs, creating jobs, so to speak, and recruiting that investment from machinery and equipment and, and obviously right. real property. So that, that is what, you know, state governments are still focused on 
what we found was, or what we found was that there are companies that are, again, there's, let me take that back. They're large or midsize in their home country, but not ready to make that investment. Maybe it's family owned. Uh, may, maybe they've focused on doing uh, a second investment in some other country. They don't have the resources to just jump and make that leap in the United States. And so they'll want to start with a sales office or they'll want to start with a small warehouse. And what we found was that uh, the state really wasn't prepared to handle that type of request. You know, that it, because it's small, it doesn't really involve any incentives. It takes a lot of work. Um, so a program um, which is called a landing pad program. The states have done this as well, the jurisdictions have, where you've got a couple of people or some regional organizations, regional um, uh, EDOs, or even local EDOs that have one or two people that are focused on helping these small companies um, really get started, helping them figure out, you know, where they can where they can get some in space or temporary space, where they can find accounting firms, where they can find uh, how to get a driver's license, all those little things that you know, any company would need when putting some doors in a new market. And so the thought process behind that is, oh, it's not as, as exciting, it's not as sexy, and it's, it's much smaller. But if they're happy there, come by the community, the idea is that they'll grow there and turn that small sales office into something bigger and eventually, hopefully, but it takes a right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, um, I guess why would a company not um, expand into the U.S.? What, what's the what's the risk? What's their hesitation? Like, why would they not do that? Why would a company not invest in the U.S.? Um, yes. they, they don't know it. You know, they don't know the market. They hear stories about uh, the legal world in the market and people getting sued, and the, um, it's it's just the the unknown. Um, and it's a big, it can seem like a very big risk to, to international companies and European companies, and especially again, if they're, they're family run or family owned, um, it seems easier for them just to step into the next country, you know, company, maybe sure. we'll go to Austria next, maybe next, um, um, because we feel comfortable with it and we, we know, we know the laws and, um, whereas, you know, it's. United States is, is a, a big prize, but it also seems overwhelming. And, um, and so that's a great thing, you know, having states that experience recruiting international companies, having regional groups that are experienced with it, and having lawyers and account firms that, that know the typical questions, the typical needs that a European or an international company has when they come in. Because you've seen the question a zillion times. You, you know the answers. Right. You know where to go to make life easier for them. Um, you know, is, is it an LLC? Is it, is it an Inc? Um, is it, should I, as in Delaware, should I do it in that I'm going to incorporate in or don't, going to open an office in, you know, again, standards that, that are, that every, every company um, that's international asks when they're coming to the United States. That's good. Yeah. I was going to ask then, and I, you, you answered that entirely, but I was going to ask, you know, what can they do to make it easier? But realistically it's connecting with those people that have experience in, helping companies in the exact same situation. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, yeah, you, you can, you can jump, jump off the deep end and get instances or rabbit holes. If you really don't pull in 
experts in immigration and you know you as an uh, in um, an EDO are trying to do that all by yourself i mean you're you're really there if you're a small EDO or you're a regional EDO you're really there to help connect them with the right people the experts and and let the experts take it from there um, because you can you can spend a lot of time <laughs> trying trying to find answers that 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 somebody um, you know that a lawyer knows and and uses and does all the time. So um, incentive wise, um, I understand you know why the states would incentivize this, but um, do they have to? Are there you know is it is it um, is that just a cherry on top? Is or is you know, is it uh, profitable for these businesses to do this even without the incentive? Yeah. So, it, um, on, if so, we're, let's let's take it in two parts about a small scale, like you know, sales office. Sure. Um, m- most states provide zero in terms of incentives because you know most okay. most incentives are right. based on job creation and investment. Correct. And there's, there's very little at that point. So what? What what they do do is what I mentioned before, like a soft incentive where you're like super um, help connect you with the right people. So they're soft incentives. You know, they're they're things that make a company's life easier, but it's it's not cash or it's not um, um, you know sort of tax rebate. Right. Um, and some communities can offer low cost space, and that that can be very helpful for a company that's trying to get things started. For, for the larger companies, it's I mean, it can be very lucrative. I mean, if you're going to create a hundred jobs or invest ten million dollars, and you're going into a rural area, there may be lots of incentives for you. Um, you know, if you're got that same number and you're going into a metropolitan area, there there may not be as much in the way of incentives. So, it, it's helpful. the The way that I talk with clients and the way that I advise European companies, however, is that don't let incentives drive your decision. Your decision needs to be made made based on you know fixed cost and cost and where your suppliers are and where your end um, your end consumers are factors any would weigh decision and then the incentives are what push push the decision over the edge um, because. Uh, uh, great incentives will never make a bad site a good one, um, and that's right. sort of the that's sort of the story that I that I definitely tell and have to repeat sometimes often because I will get requests all the time about well let's go to the place with the best incentives. And the other thing I want to mention is when a when a state or a local person hears the first question out of the mouth is uh, is something to the effect of well what are your incentives going to be for us um, you know before they even talk about the company and what its needs are. It's sort of off-putting because uh, the company—I mean, excuse me—the community feels like it's it's an incentives chase, so to speak. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So, um, what is it that you do all day? Like, describe your typical day. Like, how does it play out? And you know, what's involved? Because it sounds like there's so many different pieces. Yeah, there are a lot of different pieces. Um, so, a typical day um, is. You know, me wearing my sometimes my lawyer hat and reviewing documents or um, help helping draft a contract. And part of my day is um, working with companies that are trying to figure out, do I want to go to location A in Texas or B in um, 
in Arkansas or C in Ohio uh, and helping them do that analysis of, of the costs that are involved and, and what are all the different factors they should weigh. And the other part of my job is, is sort of figuring out who we're going to reach out to next or what trade show I'm going to take part in or where I'm going to do a, a, a mission to next in Europe to call on companies that I have interest or are expecting to be um, or, or either having or I can tell by what they've been doing that they're a likely candidate for doing something in the United States. So that's a typical day. Um, sometimes days are more exciting than others. Sometimes um, um, sometimes I'm traveling. Um, that's what you know, sure. What, how much, how much travel do you do? Yeah. yeah. So, so d I travel a lot because, you know, just like a typical site selector, we're doing work sure. in, in multiple States. And so I, I try to be in person, at least for initial meetings with, with communities. Um, and of course with clients, and then we do a lot of work on, on zoom and, and WebEx and, and the rest of the platforms. Um, and then internationally, I try to three trips a year. Um, I spent a lot of time, uh, in Germany, obviously, cause I live there. Um, but, but this past year, uh, I was also in Turkey for a little while. I've got a several Turkish clients. Um, we've, we've got some Canadian clients. Um, really it runs a gamut. So it really depends on where I see the most activity at the moment. I've got a couple other opportunities. So, so it's a lot of travel. Yeah. It sounds like it. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time on the phone and a lot of time on the, uh, <laughs> on, on, on text and email. So yes, exactly. So, what um, you know, in your opinion, what countries are um, really ripe for expansion into the U.S.? Then maybe they're under you know they're maybe historically they haven't been the the ones that are ready and you know really sending a lot of projects, but maybe today are. Yeah. So I mean, if you you look historically, the number one source of of investment is, is the UK in Germany. I mean, those are the two, the two big ones followed by sure. probably Italy and, uh, you know, uh, Austria, but, but I'm believe it or not in Turkey, as I mentioned before, I think that there are a lot of Turkish companies that are looking to diversify. Um, at the moment, the inflation rate in Turkey is, is unbelievable. I could be off on the number, but roughly 80% per year inflation. Oh wow. Unbelievable. So they're trying to ensure that um, all of their eggs are not in one basket. And United States for them is one more hour in terms of time zone away, um, but has lots of opportunities for them to, to grow their business and to, to ensure that it's you know, the world as well. Um, in terms of other countries, uh, I've spent a ton of time in Poland um off the beaten track um yeah the, the two that come to mind um I, mean, I still spend a lot of time in, in the more traditional markets uh just because i mean there's there's a ton of manufacturing that comes out of of, of germany um but i i try to to make sure that i'm, I'm touching other countries as well i mean especially if there's sure. an opportunity in one uh, i'll build a, a a larger trip around it absolutely so we've been hearing um that europe is going to have a real tough time this winter with with energy prices and uh, the ongoing war in the Ukraine, um, what is your, what is your opinion? What do you what are you expecting to see uh, in the in German industry? You know, in the next you know six eight months. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's uh, it's going to be 
it's going to be a little slow. Um, again, the energy costs are 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 very high. Um, still a considerable amount of instability regarding uh, Ukraine, and um, and I I think that German and European companies in general are concerned about um, what the what the next six months will be because it's still we've, we're still pre-COVID um, uh, in terms of logistics issues. Um, so I, I think it's going to be a little slower, um, at least for, for people like for people like me, um, mm -hmm. because I think companies are, are still a little skittish about making investments. Um, and even if they had big plans to make investments, um, the cost of construction in the United States uh, has gone up and the cost of borrowing has gone up. So it's it's making them look again and make sure that they have all their their eyes dotted and their T's crossed. Having said that, I mean we still see uh, companies that are that are doing things in the United States. Um, but what I have seen is that it tends to be existing European companies or existing international companies expanding their footprints. So I mean obviously the big boys are still continuing to invest. I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of activity in renewable energy in the United States. At the moment, there's a lot of activity, mm -hmm. and obviously, let's get. So you see those major players still looking to invest in the U.S., but I, in general, general manufacturing, I, I think there's a hesitation, um, and it's not because it, it's an investment in the United States; it's just a hesitation on what the overall economic conditions will be in the next, the next two quarters. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so I don't want to sound gloomy. But I am a little gloomy about it. Um, I mean, just a little. Uh, just a little. Just a little. It's good to have an expert, that somebody that understands this, because you know we kind of hear, um, you know, differing opinions on what the you know um, future is going to look like. So, oh, I guess um, since I well, have one you thing worked that I for. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I no, was going to ask gonna you about. What... Go ahead. <laughs> one one thing star, let me say, or bright, shiny part is the um, some of the federal legislation that's come out to encourage renewable energy. And it's not just incentives to uh, encourage existing manuals to use renewable energy and modernize their facilities to use less energy, but obviously uh, incentivizing companies to um, make more wind turbines and make aids for turbines. And and to try to really rejuvenate and uh, jumpstart the United States leader on the energy front. So why that's interesting is because Europe has got us beat by about 10 years, if not more, in terms of their use of renewable energy, their use of solar panels. When, and so you will definitely see uh, a lot more companies that have experience in that looking from Europe, looking to come to the United States to um, get into that market and be a player here um, because of the money that's going to be flowing. And obviously those companies can take advantage of some of those incentives as well, as long as they're, they're based in the U S or using a certain percentage of their, um, uh, their production is, is based in the U S. Wow. That is a bright side. No, that's a definite market that you can go after because yeah, they're right. They have more experience and that makes yeah. sense. Wow. That's good. Yeah, that's excellent. That's good news. So, um, I guess finally, ha we're having trouble in the U.S. everywhere, um, you know, finding labor to to fill all the jobs. What's the situation like in Europe? Um, yeah, the employment rate is 
not as low as it is here. And it really depends on the country, but I mean, they're having the same issues. Um, so um, yeah, it, it's, well, you know, what you're finding is people are just having to raise, uh, raise the, what they pay wages, um, you know, which is sort of standard economics. Um, right. It's, it's, it's difficult to find people to do work uh, across the globe. And that, I mean, obviously that's absolutely attributable to COVID and, a relatively robust economy. I mean, there there are expectations that they will have a very slight rece recession now. At least what I sort of heard from the economists in the first and second quarter, but no bad as people predicted. Um, but the labor issue is is reverberating across the U.S. and across the world. Uh, in fact, I from part of the South uh, said it. You know, it's. It can't find the labor it needs. It's thinking about moving to another part of the South. And I, I said, I'm, I'm happy to help you do that um, if you want to move, but understand that there, <laughs> there's no better labor situation uh, um, in this other part of the U.S. versus the place that you're in now. It's just, it's just the way things are at the moment. Right. I've seen demographic charts of Europe that show that it's, you know, much older and has a, um, percentage-wise has, you know, fewer young people are, and you know, any of these European companies, are they worried about that? Yeah. You know, I've had a conversation with a company that, 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 in, that indicated it was concerned about that, but you're right. That is that huge issue across Europe that people are getting. And again, I mean, we're generalizing across the entire right. continent, but, but in general married at a later age, they're having less uh, children um, and so knowing that this is an issue and everybody's aware of it, you do see European governments um, making or are creating its, um, social benefits, social programs to encourage uh, people to have children, um, uh, subsidizing cost of child care, um, extending um, a mother and father's ability to be away from work, making life easier for them to encourage them to have kids. I mean, it's sort of a long, a long range plan. It seems, it seems small, but, um, it does, you know, again, it, uh, Europe, Europe will be suffering from a lack of people. And so the other question is, you know, immigration. I mean, if, if there are not enough people to do the jobs that, that, uh, Europeans, um, don't want to do, or, uh, not to fill the jobs just because there are not enough people, then you'll, you'll, you'll definitely see policies where they're encouraging people from other countries to, to move in, uh, whether that be from African countries or, or uh, Eastern, uh, former Eastern Bloc or Asian countries to, to help fill that, that uh, need for additional labor. Interesting. We sort of, we're going to see the same sort of issue here in the United States as well. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to probably end up addressing it exactly the same way. <laughs> Interesting. So how, uh, I guess, how did you get into this? How did you, you know, get into economic development like this? Yeah. So I, um, how did I get into it? So I'm a former Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, when I graduated from school, I joined the Peace Corps and lived in Latin America for a couple of years. And so I always had an interest in languages and living internationally. Um, but I also knew that I wanted to go to law school. Um, so I did both. I did an uh, international business degree and a law degree. 
And then I started working in a real estate development company and, uh, you know, we're, we were busy building homes and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of uh, infill um, in, in, uh, in the town I was living in. And then 2018, excuse me, 2008 hit and the market just died for residential construction. Sure. I said, you know what, I, I, my, my job has gone from putting together deals and trying to build things, trying to figure out how we can get out of these deals that we put together. And so I said, you know what, I need to do something different. And so I joined the South Carolina Department of Commerce because they need the language skills and it you know, seemed like an interesting place to work. And I said, I'd stay for two years and I ended up staying for 10. Um, and so easily got the bug. I mean, when you're, when you're working to recruit companies on behalf of your home state and you're helping rural areas with helping people find jobs and helping with investment, it, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. So I really, really enjoyed it. And like I did, like I said, I did that for 10 years. And as part of that, I was sent overseas to, to run the South Carolina Europe office. And I also met office in Tokyo and the office in Shanghai and uh, started the office in New Delhi. So when I worked there, wow. I was constantly on the road. Yeah, I was constantly flying around everywhere. Yeah. Every week wow. I was in another country. I mean, obviously a little easier in Europe because another country is two hours away sure. based in Munich, but I was also flying uh, um, internationally everywhere. And again, great job. Most exciting job I've ever had is, is, is working on behalf of, of, of a state. Lots of fun. That's incredible. So how many especially languages one that do you an appreciation. Speak? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was about to say, especially one that has an appreciation for international and international. Companies. Right. So I had the tool and the backing of the Secretary of Commerce and the governor. Um, how many languages do I speak? Well, uh, I guess Southern is that language, maybe, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, I speak Portuguese. I speak Spanish. I speak Spanish at home. Um, uh, my German's only okay, um, probably not not that great. A um, little bit of Italian, um, yeah. So so let's say three and uh, wow. two. I mean, I, two I use on a daily basis, and uh, and the Portuguese I don't get to speak as much as I used to. So it probably sounds more like a, a mix between Spanish and, and Portuguese. Portuñol is what they call it. But um, ah. yeah, I, I, I really enjoy. Um, working internationally and I, I really enjoy working with international companies it's, it's a lot of fun it's it's the most exciting part of what i do in in this role at uh, mcguire woods yeah that's fantastic well hey this has been uh, great you have really opened i hope everyone's eyes to just all these different facets of of what it is that you do and I, you've really made working for a state sound really exciting so i mean that's <laughs> that's good Absolutely think it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to reach out to you, um, what is the best way for them to get in contact? Yeah, the, the best approach is to send me an email at uh, Graham, F-G-R-A-H-A-M at um, McGuireWoods.com email. Um, you can also uh, reach out to me at my office number, um, which is off the top of my head. I can't remember. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I never give it out. Hold on. Yeah, so you can uh, uh, fgram at mcguirewoods.com. Shoot me an email. That's the best way to get in touch with me. Or, or you can leave a message at uh, um, 803-251-2305. Um, but I, you know, I live on the phone, so the best way is to shoot me an email. I'm a Great. And um, yeah.
Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Ford. Dane, thanks for not falling asleep, man. I appreciate it. And uh, Hey, no problem. <laughs> and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. I look forward to um, Absolutely. look forward to listening to it when it comes out. You've been listening to the Econ Dev Show with Dane Carlson. If you're an economic developer who never stops learning, for more expert strategies, fresh insights, and new ideas to take your career, organization, and your community to the next level, visit us on the web at econdevshow.com. We thank Cathode Ray for their support of the Econ Dev Show.